The nature of faith is that it's hard to see. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews gives us this definition in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky when you're told to believe in a God that you can't see, that you can't perceive, that the scriptures tell us that our own spirits suppress the truth about this God. And we look around our, our situation and we look around our circumstances and we look around our communities and around our world. And the truth is, is that it's difficult to see sometimes where God is there at all. It's difficult when you're throwing up from a chemo treatment. It's difficult when you see another child that has been abused or another child that has fallen prey, another child that has fallen ill. Yes, we we look around our world. We, We even look at our own circumstances and it's often for us incredibly difficult to see where God can be in the midst of any of it. You see, what the scriptures teach us And what I bet your own life will bear out is that the providence of God is best appreciated in retrospect. The providence of God is best appreciated in retrospect. The nature of faith is hard to see in the here and now, but the glory of providence is that when you're looking back, when you're examining your life over the course of your life, when you come to the end and you look back over the trajectory of who you've been, where you've been, and what God has done, Very often, you already know. Those of you that have been around a minute, you already know that very often the most difficult moments of your life, those moments in which were a crisis of faith, you look back and you realize that those are the examples, the greatest examples of the faithfulness of God in your life. That when you see the strands of providence woven together, that you can see the plan of God powerfully and beautifully and wonderfully in a a way that you couldn't in the moment. And brothers and sisters, this is how we are to understand the death of Jesus. This is how we are to understand the cross of Jesus, that in the cross, as Jesus is placed in the tomb, it appears as though defeat has come. It appears as though God is silent. It appears as though God has vanished or maybe was never there at all. Oh, but history tells us something different, doesn't it? Looking back over a retrospect, we see something different. We see that God was there and God wasn't just there, but God was working and he was bringing all things together wonderfully well and powerfully so, so that his church might be redeemed, so that we might be set free and so that his crucified son may be exalted. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to begin in verse 55. When you get there, if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to see how the cross actually verifies God's providence and leads to God's glory. Beginning in verse 55 of Matthew 27, God's word says, There were also women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. 
he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it on his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. This morning, if you need a sermon, God, we have some gentlemen that would love to get you one. Just hold up your hand and leave it up and those fellows will, will find you. Sometimes it's easy for us to walk and talk about the plan of God as though it were out there somewhere, Right? Sometimes we talk about missions as though missions is some great fairy tale in a land that is far, far away that involves people that we've never seen, people that we've never met, and people that, if we're honest, we have very little interest in meeting. And so our concept is of missions is something that happens way off there somewhere, way out there in a place long ago so that they might live happily ever after. But the truth is, is that we have very much difficulty seeing the faces, don't we? We have difficulty seeing that these are real people and real children and real moms and real grandmoms and real dads and real granddads, that these are people made in the image of God. We have difficulty understanding that the providence of God is a real plan that affects real people. It's a real plan that affects real people that this morning in our community, in our community, there are children that have very little hope of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ from mom and dad. There are children around the world that have almost 0% chance unless we go to them of hearing the, the good news of Jesus Christ. That there are men waking up lonely and women waking up neglected in our community. There's hardship all the way around us. And we would say that the Lord we know is working all of these things together for our good and for his glory. The providence of God, as powerful as that is, as hopeful as that is, is painful often in the moment. And that pain affects real people. That trauma affects real people. So this morning, that's what I want us to look and see in our text, how God's plan works through all people for the church's good and for the Lord's glory. First, I want us to see that the plan of God uses the weak for the wonderful. The plan of God uses the weak for the wonderful. There's something a bit strange that's kind of going on here. All right, you'll, you'll notice in verses 55 and 56, there's like these, almost like an editorial comment here uh, by Matthew, right? He kind of throws it in, and if you're honest, you kind of read that and you think, you know, Matthew, it would have been cool if you just left that out. It's not, it doesn't really seem like a big deal. He says that you have many women, that you have Mary Magdalene, you have the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that they are there and they're witnessing what is happening with Jesus, then you'll notice again in verse 61, he says almost the same thing, that, that there Jesus is being taken to go to Joseph's tomb and 
that there are these ladies yet again, and they're sitting there, and they're staring at the tomb. They're opposite of the tomb. In other words, they're kind of chilling out under a shade tree, watching and observing all that's going on. And so it, it seems almost like a throwaway comment, except that we know that Matthew doesn't write that way. And we know that the Holy Spirit is superintending all of this and bringing all of these things together to say something to us. You see, women were viewed in the ancient Near East as vessels of weakness, as vessels of weakness. And, and so they were unable to, to own land. They were unable to, to speak to another man in public. They couldn't be used as witnesses in the court of law that if, if your case hinged on the testimony of a woman, your case was doomed. They couldn't come into the school of a rabbi and become the disciples of a rabbi. Their, their work was seen at home. It wasn't that it wasn't valued. It was valued. But their, their value in the society was, was seen in their ability to have children and to make a home and to, to do it honorably before the Lord. That's what we see pictured in Proverbs 31, if you stop and really think about it. But here he is. Here he is, and he's painting us a picture of these women that are weak, and he keeps bringing it up and bringing it up, and I think it's because he wants us to draw a contrast here. Mary's there, and Mary Magdalene's there, and the, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee is there. In fact, it says many women are there, but guess who's not there? Do you remember the bold and brazen Peter? You remember the bold and brazen Peter? The one who said, I am so strong, I will fight to the death for you. The one who said that if it costs me my very own life, I will lay down that life for you, Jesus. And then went and denied him before a servant girl. Then there's Matthew. Imagine Matthew. Do you know how Matthew is writing this account? Do you know how he's writing this account? On the testimony of many women. On the testimony of many women. Do you know why? Because Matthew wasn't there. Matthew didn't see Jesus on the cross and Matthew didn't see Jesus laid in the tomb. Matthew is dependent upon the testimony of another. And whose testimony is he dependent upon? He is dependent upon the testimony that the world says doesn't even count. You can imagine Matthew writing these words to his own shame. I should have been there. I should have been courageous for my Lord. I should have been counted among the crowd ministering to, he, to, to him. But here I can only bear witness that these ladies were there. Think about James and John. You'll remember just a few chapters ago in Matthew, James and John, they went to Jesus and said, Jesus, who's the greatest in your kingdom? Jesus, can we sit on your right and on your left? Can we have the esteemed seats in your court? And yet James and John, they aren't there. They aren't watching. They aren't caring. They aren't ministering. They're running for their lives in witness protection. And do you know who's there? Their mother. The scriptures tell us that James and John are the sons of Zebedee. And here's the wife of Zebedee, present. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. And there may not be a clearer picture in all of the scriptures of an opportunity that God has shown where he uses the weak and he shames the strong. He upholds the sick and he puts to death the well. For he came not to save the well, but for the sick, because they are the ones in need of a physician. He came to seek the lost, not those who are found. 
And so here are cultural outcasts. Here are those on the margins of society, on the periphery of the family. And they are what God uses to, to bring shame and to bring, bring shame to the disciples and care to the Lord Jesus. But that's not all. That's not all. You remember that I told you that they couldn't be used as, as witnesses in the court case, but you know what? God, he totally disregards that. He totally disregards the social protocol. Because see, God uses who the world discards, right? God uses who the world discards. And so, so, so the, the world says, your testimony means nothing to me. Your testimony can't build any kind of case. Your testimony has no credibility behind it. And do you know what the Lord does? So this is who I'm going to use to verify that Jesus was crucified as I said he would be, that he died as I said he would, that he would be buried as I said that he would, and that he would be raised again. Matthew 28, the first people there, who? The women. The women. Maybe in your mind you would say, well, uh, maybe that morning when they went on that Easter morning and they went to, to the tomb and they found it empty, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Or, or, or maybe Pilate just refused to give him the body. Maybe it was just kind of, of a big misunderstanding and Pilate never ultimately gave over the body to his disciples and instead followed in line with what would have been custom for his day. Except, except that the Lord put witnesses there. The Lord put witnesses there. The Lord put many women around the, around the cross. The Lord put many women there as witnesses on Golgotha. He put many there that were there and they heard as Jesus cried out. They heard as Jesus had nails driven through his hands and his feet. They heard as Jesus prayed for his executioners. They heard as Jesus said into your hands, I commit my spirit. They heard as he said, it is finished. They heard it. They were there. They watched as the, as the spear pierced his side and blood and water flowed out of, his, out of his side. They watched as the executioner declared him dead. They were there when Jesus was taken down off of the cross and handed over to Joseph of Arimathea. And they were there at the tomb when Jesus' body was placed. So there's no mistake. There's no mistake. There's no, there's no incorrect tomb. There's no wrong placement. No, God has put wit witnesses there. In the providence of God, he provided the witnesses the world wouldn't accept to validate that he had really put his son to death and that his son was really buried in the earth. See, these ladies didn't go to the cross intending to be used by God. These ladies went to the cross because they loved Jesus. These ladies went to the cross because it mattered to them what became of Christ. They went to the cross because that's where their passion carried them. That's where their affection carried them. That's where their love carried them. And yet while they were there, while they were there and they were heartbroken and while they were there and tears flowed down their faces and while they were there and they were in emotional distress, God behind the curtain of pain was doing the work of providence through them. If you'd ask them that day, would you be willing to serve as the star witness for God's case? Would you be willing to bear witness that Jesus is who he is and did what he said he would do? That, that would you be willing to be the witness that said that Jesus died according to the plans of God and was buried according to the plans of God and raised according to the plans of God? You know what they would have said? No, I'm too weak. I'm too weak. Nobody will listen to me. Nobody will pay attention to me. Nobody will give my story any type of credibility. 
But the beauty of God's design is that the plan of God uses the weak for the wonderful. This morning, I hope you're too weak. I hope you're too weak. I hope you're too weak to do what God is calling you to do. I hope you're too weak to be who God is calling you to be. I hope you're, you're too weak to have the kind of marriage that the Lord is calling you to. I hope that you're too weak to live on mission the way that God is calling you to live on mission. I hope that you're too weak to model a kind of integrity and character that the Lord God has called you to. I hope that you're too weak to reach the standard that the Lord has set when he says, be holy as I am holy. Because the weak are not disqualified in the kingdom of God. No, the weak are qualified for service in the kingdom of God. It is weakness that qualifies us to be submitted in humility to the grace of the Lord by the power of the Spirit to be used for His own good. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that used a wretch like me. He saved me, and then he didn't just save me, but he began to work through me and work in me, so much so that God, God can use me. All week long, all week long, I've reminded myself of this. I stand here supposed to preach to you, and I don't feel qualified to do that. The truth is, is I wish you had a stronger pastor. I wish you had a man of greater holiness. I wish you had a man of greater honor. But I struggle in my devotion life. I struggle in my prayer life. I I struggle with my attitude and I struggle with my thoughts. I struggle with sin. I struggle being the husband that I preach to you to be. I struggle to be the daddy that I preach to you to be. I struggle to be the father of Jesus that I call for you to be. Over and again this week, as the deceiver made accusations against me, I reminded myself of Mary, and I reminded myself of the mothers of Zebedee. Oh, it is the weak that the Lord uses to shame the strong. It is weakness that qualifies us for service in the kingdom of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, will you bring your weakness to the Lord? Will you come to the Lord? If you would say, I'm not strong enough, that's okay. You're the perfect candidate. If you would say, I don't know enough, that's okay, you're the perfect candidate. If you would say, I don't have what it takes to be on mission, nobody who serves God honorably in missions believe that they have what it takes. No, No, your, your weakness qualifies you for service in the kingdom of God. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the weak to accomplish the wonderful. Next, I want you to see that the plan of God uses the willing for the wonderful. Not only does he use the weak, but he also uses the willing. In verse 57, we're introduced to an extraordinary man, a man that we only find in this part of the scriptures, in the the gospel accounts. A man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And we learn by reading all the gospel accounts that, that Joseph of Arimathea was a, a member of the council, likely intended to mean the Sanhedrin. Matthew makes sure that we know that Joseph was a wealthy man. 
He was a member, think of it, he was a member of the very group of people that Jesus had called a brood of vipers, a, a group of people that Jesus had called down prophetic condemnation upon in Matthew chapter 23. When Jesus curses the fig tree, he is drawing a picture of the fruitlessness of the temple under the leadership of this very council. He has called them this den of snakes. But what we are reminded by seeing Joseph, the secret disciple, it says in John's account, that even in a den of snakes, God saves a remnant. God saves a remnant. You look throughout the history of the people of God, and as wicked as they are, and as debased as they are, and as much debauchery as you find among them, there is always a remnant of faithfulness. There is always a remnant of those that God is saving that even though ethnic Israel may not be devout to the Lord, that there are members of the true Israel that are there. Those whose faith is credited to them as righteousness. And that's what we find in this Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea. He's guilty of, he goes and he approaches uh, Pilate to do something that's unconventional. And remember, Joseph is a man of, of considerable networking connections, okay? Like, this is that guy that you know that is just friends with everybody that matters, okay? That's Joseph. And so he uses his clout to gain audience with the governor. And this is in the middle of the night, by the way. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I can't get Kay Ivey's attention, in the middle of the night, okay? I can't get Kay Ivey's attention on my best day. So you can think about the type of influence a man like Joseph has. He gets before Pilate in the middle of the night and he asks Pilate to do something that is incredibly unconventional. Typically, in the Roman Empire, when a man was crucified, especially if he was guilty of high treason, as Jesus was sentenced for, he was, his body, after he died, was left there to rot off the cross. It was left there for a period of, of weeks so that the, all the passers-by could be reminded of what would happen of them if they chose to lead an insurrection or a revolution like this man had. And so here's Joseph, and he's coming, and he is a disciple of Jesus that John tells us he's kept it secret because of his position. He's kept it secret because he knew that the other Jews would loathe him for it. And he comes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Christ. He comes and he says, I, 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 need, I need to take care of him. I need to honor him. I need to be, I need to be pleasing. To, I need to do something that would be pleasing in the sight of my Lord. I, I need to do something for this man that has done so much for me. You see, this is Joseph's coming out party. You can't be a secret follower of Jesus very long, can you? You can't be a secret follower of Jesus very long. Because following Jesus causes you to stand out. Following Jesus causes you to make decisions that nobody else would make. You want to understand the gravity of this moment. Imagine today that if we were to go to one of the Muslim countries that are currently living under Sharia law, where they hold to a, a rigid, fundamentalist uh, approach to the Quran. And imagine that we had one there, a man that was there who said that he was the fulfillment of Mecca. He was the greater Muhammad and that all should begin to follow him as the fulfillment of the Quran, as the Quran incarnate. And imagine as, as, as one of the, the sheiks or uh, one of the imams began to say, ah, I'm leaving all of this behind to follow after this man. Can you imagine how he would be treated? 
Can you imagine how he would be discarded? Can, can you imagine the, how public his humiliation and his execution would be? This is what Joseph is risking. Joseph was a man that had a lot to lose. You understand that? He had a lot to lose. He was a wealthy man. He was a prominent man. He was a man of influence. To be on the council, you had to be married. So he was a family man. All of this comes into question when he says, give me the body, give me the Lord Jesus. I am a disciple of his and I have to care for him. I have to, take, I have to do what a disciple should do in this situation. All of this is a rejection of his position on the council, a forfeiture of his standard of living so that he can honor the Lord Jesus as he has chosen to do. In other words, Joseph is making a decision that doesn't just affect him. Joseph is making a decision that affects his wife. It affects his kids. It affects their inheritance that's going to go away. It affects the, the, the prominence of their family that was enough to sustain them for generations yet to come. And in place of that prominence is going to be utter humiliation and the destruction of his reputation. See, in Joseph, Joseph shows us the path of a true disciple of Jesus. Joseph shows us the path of a true disciple of Jesus. It's a path that looks just like Jesus' path. For the true disciples of Jesus, there is no price too high for following him. See, what I find common in my life, or what I find common in the lives of those that are in our church family and those that, that proclaim and profess the name of Jesus in our community, is that very often, the more we believe we have to lose, the more conservative we become in following Jesus. The more that we believe we have to lose, the more conservative we become in following Jesus. The reason that most of us are unfaithful to the Lord, the reason that most of us are disobedient to the Lord, the reason most of us don't share the gospel like we're called to share the gospel, the reason most of us don't go where God is sending for us to go, the reason most of us don't do what God has said to do is because we just have too much to lose. We've got our retirement tracking the way we want it to. We've got our standard, living, standard of living finally approaching the standards that we've been aiming at We've got our address finally in the neighborhood that we want it. We've got keys to the car that we've always dreamed of. We've got kids that are growing and a marriage that is flourishing. And if we go where God is sending us, if we are obedient to where God is calling us, it might just cost it all. And so the more that we attain in this world and the more that we build up in this world and the more that we love in this world, the more conservative we become in our risk-taking for Jesus the more conservative we become in our obedience for the Lord. Brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus have to decide whether obedience is worth the cost. Disciples of Jesus have to decide whether or not obedience is loss or gain. This morning, I wonder if you're willing. I wonder if you're willing to follow the Lord wherever He leads at whatever the cost. What if, what if the Lord leads you to move your family away from their grandparents? What if, what if the Lord leads you to move your family so that you have to withdraw your children from the school that they love? Are you willing to go? 
What if the Lord Jesus calls for you to change jobs? You've finally got the job that you've always aspired to have. You're finally working at the company you've always wanted to work at. You've got a salary that you're still surprised by. What if the Lord Jesus calls for you to leave that job, take a position on the wrong side of town, and then just barely scrape by? What if the Lord Jesus calls for you to give away half of your net worth? What if the Lord Jesus calls for your family to wear shoes that are from last year and clothes that they would rather have replaced so that you can adopt an orphan into your house? Are you willing? Are you willing? Or you just have too much to lose? See, I think many of us are under, under the assumption that we can live in the Bible Belt without embracing a difficult version of Christianity. That we can live in the Bible Belt and follow after Jesus at little or no cost to us. But if we can live out our lives, even here, even in the Bible Belt, and it costs us nothing, then the truth is, is that we aren't following the true Christ and we aren't obeying the actual scriptures. Because even here, perhaps especially here, if you devote your life to the Lord, our community will resent you. If you devote your family and consecrate your family to the Lord, your parenting will be judged. Your parenting will be looked down upon. If you live according to what the scriptures have said, you are going to confuse your neighbors. You're going to lose friends and business deals and money-making opportunities. If you follow after Jesus, you're probably not going to be able to do prom or formals the way that all of your friends do prom and formals. You follow after Jesus, you may stay single a lot longer than the rest of your friends are single. You follow after Jesus and, and retirement for you may look a lot busier than it looks for everybody else. And the truth is, is that churchgoers throughout our community and throughout our region, all the way across the Bible Belt, have determined that the costs of following Jesus are just too high. And they would rather have a comfortable, sanitized version that isn't anywhere in the Scriptures. Oh, brothers and sisters, are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to be a disciple of Christ? Are you willing to count obedience as gain, as not as loss? Are you willing to live for the next life? Are you willing to live for a greater treasure? Are you willing to live for a greater home? You see, Joseph was a part of something much bigger than even he realized. He was a part of a plan that was far more wonderful than he could ever imagine. Do you know what God wrote in Isaiah chapter 53 through his prophet? More than 600 years before this day? Listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 53, writing about the suffering servant and the Messiah that was to come. In verse 9 it says this, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Let me ask you, did Jesus have any control, humanly speaking, over where he was to be buried. This isn't Jesus manipulating the scriptures. This is the scriptures being fulfilled. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Joseph wanted to honor his Lord. Joseph loved his Lord. 
Joseph would have believed he had almost nothing that he can offer. So he said, just let me have the body. Let me just put the body in the ground. But God used Joseph. God used Joseph's willingness to remove Jesus from his humiliation and to inaugurate his exaltation. To be buried among the rich. To be buried where the king should be buried. To be buried where the Lord Jesus was worthy to be buried. Joseph was a part of that. See, what we see in Joseph's life is that the plan of God turns small faithfulness to big glory. He turns small faithfulness to big glory. I wonder this morning, are you willing? Are you willing? You'd say, I don't have anything to offer. Offer what you have. Offer what you can. Are you willing? I'm not a rich man. I don't have much. Offer what you have. Are you willing? I don't have a marriage. Offer yourself. I don't have kids. Offer your life. Are you willing? Are you willing? Because God uses the willing to the ends of the wonderful to accomplish that which you won't even be able to appreciate until you get to the threshold of eternity and look back in retrospect. Finally, I want us to see that the plan of God uses the wicked for the wonderful. The plan of God uses the weak. The plan of God uses the willing. And the plan of God uses the wicked for the wonderful. You can imagine it didn't take long for word to get out about what, what Joseph had done. His other council members come and, uh, and it's the day of Sabbath. And it's interesting the way that Matthew phrases it. He calls it the, the day after the day of preparation, right? So you would use all day on Friday preparing yourself and preparing your family and getting all the provisions that you would need and laying out your food and laying out your clothes so that you wouldn't have to work even one second on the Sabbath. And then Saturday would come and you would devote and consecrate the whole of that day beginning at, uh, at, at about 6 o'clock the night before and then going all the way to 6 o'clock on that Saturday night. And Matthew is here and he can't even bring himself to say Sabbath. He can't even, can't even get that out of his mouth because there's so much that's going on. And so he uses kind of a play on words and he says the day before the preparation, these guys go, these, these chief priests and Pharisees, they go and they decide to approach Pilate. And, and here, by seeing them approaching Pilate and hearing what they say to Pilate, we see that even now that hypocrisy is abounding among them. You remember what they told Pilate? That Jesus said that he had told the world that he was going to destroy the temple and then raise it in three days. And they interpreted that as being literal. And one of the reasons that Jesus was a revolutionary that needed to be crucified. You remember that? So they were kind of playing dumb. But here we see that they knew all along what Jesus really meant because they are coming to Pilate and they're saying, Pilate, hey, this guy was a fraud. This guy was an imposter. And we've almost got this put to bed. But if people believe that what he said actually happened, if people believe that this guy is actually raised from the dead, we're never going to put that thing to bed. Hey, and they got something right on that one, didn't they? <laughs> here we are. We're never going to be able to put that to bed. This guy's already known for his miraculous power and his profound authority. And if this guy, if word gets out and his disciples steal him away and it appears as though he was really raised from the dead, we're never going to stop this thing. Not only that, but you remember they have rebuked Jesus and his disciples for healing on the Sabbath and for not washing their hands, on the, doing all these things on the Sabbath. And what are they doing on the Sabbath? They're in the home of a Gentile. 
They're in the home of a Gentile. They have went to Pilate's, to Pilate's palace, and they have went to the governor's quarters there, which they should never be if they want to lead God's people in worship, if they want to offer, make an offering themselves for worship. So hypocrisy is abounding. And the reason for going to Pilate is clear. They want to fortify a dead man. They, they want to make sure that, that Jesus' body doesn't go anywhere. They want to make sure that this is not stolen away, that his, that his disciples have not come and made, done an invasion. And what they couldn't have known is that Jesus' disciples are in witness protection, right? I mean, they're, they're all scared to death. They're running away. They themselves didn't even believe Jesus when he said that he was going to be raised from the dead. And so, so Pilate tells them, basically, like, you have your own guards. Go guard the tomb. Go do what you need to do. And they seal it up. And they do all the things that we read about here in our account. But there's a contrast, right? There's, there's a contrast between the leaders of Israel and Joseph of Arimathea. A contrast between the leaders of Israel and the women in our text. That Christ's enemies live in fear while Christ's disciples live by faith. Christ's enemies live in fear but Christ's disciples live in faith. Je Joseph of Arimathea risks everything for the sake of the resurrection. He risks everything by faith that Jesus is who he says he was and will do what he says he will do. The women by faith stay and stand fast with Christ, bearing courage and shame upon their own names and their own families publicly devoted to Christ. But then here are the chief priests and the Pharisees. Here are these who are leaders in the land. Here are these who are supposed to be spiritual giants among them. And they tremble at the thought of a dead man getting out. They tremble at the thought that, that Jesus' story is not going to go to bed. Why? They were insecure. All of their treasure was insecure. All of their position was insecure. They built their life on the approval ratings of the crowd. They built their ministry on how other people esteemed them and on what other people thought of them. All of their wealth and all of their treasures were things that could be bought, things that could be built, things that could be made. But not Joseph of Arimathea. He laid all that down. Not the women who were there at the cross. So you have those who are in authority, those who have led the execution, those who have soldiers, and they are trembling. You have those who the soldiers are after, whose, whose reputations have been humiliated, those who may face certain death and martyrdom themselves, and they are faithful. You see the difference? You see, the only way to live in peace now is to live by faith in eternity, for eternity. The only way to live in peace now is to live by faith for eternity. That if your life needs the approval of your friends, if your life needs the admiration and even the envy of your neighbors, then your joy and your happiness is always going to be unsettled. It's always going to be fleeting. It's always going to be going away. That, that if your life is built on things so insecure that they can die and they can go away and they can fade away and they can rust away and they can rot away, and your contentment and your peace is going to waver with them and move with them. 
But if your perspective is on the perspective of eternity, if your perspective is on the, the big screen of God's providence and what God is doing through his plan, through all people, for all generations, if you can zoom out and see what God is doing, then even if you don't attain any of the treasures here, even if you never marry here, even if children never come into your family, even if you never have a savings account with a single dollar in it, you can have peace now. You can have security now because Christ has said who you are and Christ has established what will go with you and Christ has secured a treasure for you. Christ has done it all. And so from the perspective of eternity, every soul, regardless of wealth, regardless of race, regardless of history, regardless of gender can have peace. Can have peace. In the background, the plan of God and the providence of God, you can see the brilliance of our Lord. You can see the brilliance of our Lord. The worst fear for the Pharisees and the chief priests are that people will believe that the Lord Jesus is risen. The worst fear for, for all of these men that have formed this entourage in the Gentiles' house on the Sabbath, their worst fear is that somebody might possibly believe this crazy, outlandish story that the Galilean has risen. Do you know what God does? Do you know what God does? The plan of God used the conspirators of Christ as the apologists of the resurrection. Their very goal is to discredit that Jesus could possibly raise from the dead. Their very goal is to undermine any fool that would believe a story as crazy and as made up and as invented as that one. And God says, oh, is that what you're afraid of? Is that what you're worried about? Those of you that have, have been envious of my son, those of you that have loathed my son, those of you that have worked to sabotage my son, those of you that have worked together now to execute my son, I will use you for my son's glory. I will use you to show how powerful and mighty my son really is. I will use you to show that I am on the throne and I am reigning over all that is taking place even the cross you see it was them it was them that verified that there was a body in the tomb and then sealed it shut to show that it wasn't bothered it was them that placed armed guards y'all armed guards outside of the temple. It was them that put witnesses there to say what did and did not happen. It was them that made the story would have to go like this, that a group of uneducated, uh, uneducated, regular old fishermen overcame a guard, a, a whole contingency of temple guards, slashed them down unarmed, then rolled a multi-hundred pound stone uphill, stole the body away, and still managed to convince everybody that, that this rotting corpse was a risen Lord. They are the apologists of the resurrection. They are the clearest evidence that Christ has risen they who wanted to undermine it, they who wanted to stop it, God has used them to bring his church into worship. See, the entire world is moving together according to the will of God, whether they know it or not, whether they want to or not, whether they are wicked or not. 
that God will use the wicked. God will use the unwilling. God will use those attempting to undermine his kingdom. And on that foundation, he will build it. Whether you are weak or the willing or the wicked, you will be used for the advancement of God's glory and you will be used for the unfolding of God's plan. Oh Christian, oh Christian, see Jesus buried in the tomb. See Jesus oppressed from every side. See Jesus despised by anybody who was somebody and see that from the side of the resurrection, we can always know that in retrospect, God's plan is always wonderful. What's going on in your life? What's got, what has you questioning the goodness of God? What has you questioning the sovereignty of God? What has you questioning the power of God? What has you questioning the sufficiency of God? Oh, brothers and sisters, if you will stay faithful, if you will press on in faith into the providence of God according to the plan of God, He will use that moment of deepest tears and sorrow and He will make it the testimony of God's greatest faithfulness from this side of the resurrection we can look on our own struggles and we can look on our own heartache and we can look on our own problems and we can know that our foundation is secure that we are on the rock that the Lord Jesus has laid that he is the chief cornerstone holding this body together we are weak but he is strong we are willing but he is able we have faced down wickedness but his grace is sufficient oh church oh church come in alignment with the will of God and worship worship the exalted son this morning let's pray together